You are listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, hosted and created by me, Imani, a researcher. This is the podcast for people who research people. In this episode, I speak with Alex. Hey, my name is Alex. I am a quantitative UX researcher at Lyft, and I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, but now I am living up in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Alex is one of the first quant UX researchers I've worked with, so I was really excited that he was willing to demystify quant UX research. He'll talk about what quant UX is, what it isn't, and how he works with qualitative researchers and others. You're currently a quant UX researcher at Lyft. What does that actually mean and how did you get that job? I collect mostly attitudinal survey data from our Lyft users. I work primarily on the driver side of our organization. So working with our Lyft drivers to understand things like comprehension of products, uh, sentiment towards products. And um, this is actually my first job in tech. I made the transition over from academia where I was a PhD researcher and then a postdoc uh, for a little bit. Nice. So you have a background with the PhD. You had a lot of experience probably with qual and quant. Yeah, you know, I think with my PhD, so I got it in cognitive psychology. And um, I would say my main bread and butter methodology there was experimental research methods. So a lot of comparisons between treatment and control groups on different behavioral or attitudinal measures. Um, So I would say that most of my methodology was quantitative uh, heavy. However, I did do some qualitative methods as well, like structured interviews with some of my participants throughout my time uh, in my PhD. And so you touched on this a few moments ago when you introduced yourself. Let's go a little bit deeper. What exactly does a quant UX researcher do? So I know when I ask people these types of questions, they always say, oh, there's no typical day in the life. But let's just say, like, what are some typical tasks that you would be completing as a quant UX researcher? The kind of main difference between being a quantitative researcher and a qualitative researcher are the different research methods that you do that you use and the different data types of data that these methods produce. So, for example, in qualitative research, typically you're using methods that are not that produce data that are not kind of mapped onto numerical data, um, so numbers and scales. Thus, they're not usually mathematically analyzed. This this includes things like structured interviews, focus groups, uh, moderated and unmoderated sessions, all that good stuff that you've heard about on this podcast in previous episodes. Um, On the quantitative side of things, typically the data that we obtain uh, maps easily onto numerical values, and thus we can use mathematical analyses to analyze and make conclusions that are either statistically significant or non-significant. And in quantitative methodologies, we typically use larger sample sizes. Um, We want to be able to extrapolate from our sample to the larger population. And I would say typically the data that we obtain um, is less fine-grained and more aggregated than data produced from, from qualitative research. And so I think generally... The way I think about when stakeholders come to me, and we'll probably touch on this later on, but um, when stakeholders come to me with particular research questions, I kind of try and divide it into, is this a what question? So identifying what is going on, how frequently something is occurring, etc. Or is this a why question? Why is this behavior being produced? Why are participants interacting with this feature in this particular way? And I typically think of the what being better suited towards quantitative methods 
and the why being better suited towards qualitative methods. What research methods do quant UX researchers employ? So you mentioned surveys. What are some other methods that you usually use? I would say surveys are kind of my main go-to for, for quantitative methods. I do integrate a lot of data science methods as well. So pulling our log metrics, those are data that are captured automatically, uh, behavioral data as in, users are interacting with your app or with your product. So being able to pull in data to help provide context and clarify some of those attitudinal um, responses from survey data. In terms of other quantitative methods, anything that produces quantitative data can be considered a, a, at least a semi-quantitative method. So that could be things like card sorting, for example, and uh, usability testing, the number of participants that successfully complete your, your task, for example. So anything that really produces data that you can put a number to uh, and put a percentage to or frequency to can be considered quantitative. Although I would say that the sort of main method, uh, at least in terms of capturing attitudinal data, so that would be participants or users' attitudes towards a product or a service or a feature, the main method that I use day to day is, is survey methodology. And surveys are also so easy to set up. I mean, I'm pretty sure when you're a quant UX researcher, there's a lot there's a lot more to it than those of us who are more qual people probably wouldn't appreciate. But surveys are always a good place to start. And what makes a research method a quant method? Is it the sample size? You talked about the type of data you're collecting. What exactly makes a quant method quant? You know, surveys appear easy at the outset, but I think there's a lot of nuance with them. And the way I like to think about it is it's really easy to make a bad survey, but it's really hard to make a good survey and to follow those survey best practices to ensure that your data are both reliable uh, and accurate uh, and, and valid across time. In terms of what makes a method uh, quantitative, it's really the production of data. So is the data that's coming out free response? Uh, is it quotes? Is it verbatims from participants that would fall more on the qualitative side? Or is it numerical? Is it measures on a Likert scale of satisfaction or the level to which participants or users agree with a statement? That would fall more under the quantitative umbrella there. Um, there are also things like you mentioned with sample size that do that do tend to gravitate towards one or more of the methodologies. So like I mentioned earlier, with qualitative methods, we tend to have fewer amount of participants. That's because the kind of level of saturation is reached much quicker with qualitative data. You tend to hear the same things after six, eight, 10, or 12 users, as I'm sure you know in your experience. With quantitative data, in order to be able to extrapolate from our sample to the entire population, we want to collect enough participants that we can be confident to a certain level that it's representative. It's all about representativeness and trade-offs in terms of how much resource you're willing to put into collecting the data and timeline and other kind of resource-related trade-offs that you have to consider. Mm -hmm. And when composing a quant UX research project, what considerations are there? So how large should your sample be in terms of um, statistical significance, what are you looking for? Um, any thoughts about sampling? Sampling is a really huge part of the work I do as a quant UXR. So thinking to kind of find that like 
just that right spot where you're collecting enough data to be able to say that your sample is representative of the population, but not collecting too much data where you're wasting your time, resources, and the resources and time of your stakeholders as well. So kind of taking into account those factors, you want to be able to find a sample size that is going to be able to provide a certain level of confidence in your results um, and also be able to be conducted in a practical and sensible manner to get the insights that you're trying to achieve within a reasonable time frame. So I generally start off with, um, so when I'm thinking about sample size and there's great tools online um, that help you calculate desired sample size based on your population, your desired confidence interval. So that's how confident you'd like to be that your, your results are accurate of your population um, and your error of margin. So kind of how wide that margin is around the data that you collect. Uh, one calculator I really like to use is Qualtrics has a freely available, freely available sample size calculator that allows you to kind of toggle your confidence level and your margin of error to see how many participants you need to you need to collect in order to be confident that your sample is representative of your entire population. I think in terms of your confidence interval and where you're willing to make trade-offs, I typically start with the highest level of confidence. I propose that to my stakeholders and typically that would be around 95%. So what that means is that you have some mean produced on a scale, let's say you have a Likert scale from one to five, and uh, you, you achieve a mean of 3.5, let's say. You also have a 95% confidence interval, which is how wide or narrow that response is. So if your confidence interval is 0.5, you can be 95% sure that your mean lies between three and between four if your mean was 3.5. If that 95% confidence interval is too narrow and constricting for your uh, stakeholders and they're okay with 90%, then you might have a larger uh, margin of error around that mean that you're okay with. And perhaps your confidence interval is one. And then you're, you can say with confidence that 90%, it falls between 2.5 and 4.5. So it's really a trade-off. And then you'll need less sample size if, you're, if your confidence interval is larger. So that's the trade-off there is that the more data you collect, um, the more accurate you can be in your sample in terms of representing the population. The less data you collect, you know, it's less resource intensive in terms of time and money if you're paying your respondents, for example. However, typically the level of confidence that you can have with regards to your findings is less. So it's all about trade-offs and where your stakeholders are willing to give and where they're not willing to give. And this sounds like, as it is with any research project, that this requires a lot of planning ahead of time, <laughs> including developing at least one hypothesis when you're doing research. But a hypo the word hypothesis is used so loosely amongst qualitative researchers, myself included. But when you're doing quant research, right, that's so heavily focused on numbers, hypothesis has a more specific meaning. So what is a hypothesis in terms of quant UX research? I think that's a great question. And, and you're right in saying that the hypotheses that we formulate have to be very specific. And importantly, it's, it's crucial to have those hypotheses laid out in writing before you run your experiment or your survey rather, because um, it's all easy, too easy to say in hindsight, oh, we were expecting this to occur or we're expecting this to occur, but you can hold yourself accountable if you have your hypotheses written out beforehand. So 
the way we formulate hypotheses, typically a stakeholder will come to me. Maybe it's the product manager, for example, and say, I have a feeling like this new product is going to be liked more than our old product. And in the conjunction with an experiment, for example, we'll run a survey that gauges user sentiment towards the new product and towards the old product. And let's say we measured sentiment on a scale from one to five, with one being, I hate this product, and five being, I love this product. And we'd have this hypothesis that the liking rating would be higher for those users who are answering the question about the new product versus answering the question about the old product. And we'd be able to say after we've collected the data that those differences either are statistically significant between the old and new in terms of sentiment or they're not. So hypotheses really kind of follow this statistical framework where we have these means perhaps for sentiment and we want to know whether they're statistically different from each other with a hypothesis being, for example, our new product has higher sentiment than our old product. So we're really taking these kinds of vague gut feelings or hypotheses based on prior work and kind of translating those into actionable research questions uh, with outcomes that are specific and uh, will provide insights that actually lend themselves to to answer those uh, research questions. If you are an aspiring or current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, professional brand, interview skills, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. Coaching clients exit the program with a refreshed resume, cover letter, research portfolio, and detailed notes to make them more competitive in the UX research job market. If you are interested or know someone who is, visit yizzyresearch.com to learn more and apply. That's Yizzy Research, Y-Z-Z-I research.com. something that you said that's really obvious but I want to emphasize it before doing research it's important to have your hypothesis written down or typed up somewhere beforehand right because you don't want to do the research and say oh yes we thought this would happen or I knew this would happen right so yeah that that's so that's obvious but it's really important to repeat that the importance of having hypotheses or even I know with qualitative research um, we may use the word assumptions since it's a little bit uh, looser mm-hmm. yeah having those documented ahead of time definitely helps gives you some kind of not a goalpost, but just something to compare your findings to. And I think also in terms of thinking about writing your hypotheses down ahead of time or your assumptions down ahead of time, sometimes an unexpected finding is more interesting than something that you were already hypothesizing or assuming would be true. And perhaps that leads to new insights in a new direction for the product. Whereas in some evaluatory work, for example, if you just find what you were expecting to find, that is all well and good, but perhaps might have less of an impact than a surprising finding might have. So another reason to make sure you document your your hypotheses and your assumptions before conducting your research so that you can then go back and assess, was what we were expecting what we actually found? If it was, great, we validated this concept or this product. If not, let's dig into that further. Why is this happening um, and what can we do with it? So let's say now you did your research project, you have your data from a quant study, let's say, for example, from a survey. How do you make sense of this data? Do you do descriptive stats, inferential stats? Do you use R? Do you use Excel? How do you make sense of all of this? I think there's a variety of methods that one can use. I think the first thing I like to do is get a lay of the land. So that would be just looking at those descriptive stats. So let's say I have a series of 
Likert type scale ratings that participants responded to, I want to first look at the means. So the average amounts uh, that participants responded to on these scales and the standard deviations, what was the kind of variance around those different means. So I'll first look at those and kind of get a lay of the land, as I mentioned, uh, to see what the kind of average score was and what the spread around that score was. Typically, if you're using a, uh, a software like SurveyMonkey or Qualtrics, you can do both of those within those platforms. They have the ability to calculate means and standard deviations for you. So that's very useful. Um, you can also download the data yourself and use either Google Sheets um, or Microsoft Excel, for example, and, and calculate those manually. From then, I'll try and tackle our research questions um, with regards to our hypotheses that we were talking about earlier. So if we have a hypothesis that group A has higher sentiment than group B on a particular product, I'll then take those data, those sentiment data, and do what we call inferential statistics. So that's looking beyond the actual data that are there in order to determine whether there's a statistically significant difference between your groups, for example. In a case where you're asking two separate groups, a single measure, um, you'd want to use something called an independent samples t-test in order to determine whether there's a difference in your sentiment scores between group A and group B. Uh, and if you have a significant finding there, you can say that you know group A liked pr the product significantly more than group B. If there's no significant difference there, of course, then there's no then there's equivalent liking between your groups. So that's how I typically do it. I use a variety of different software. I use R. Um, I use some point and click software as well when I'm feeling lazy. And then also there's built-in analysis software in those in those survey uh, platforms that I mentioned, SurveyMonkey and Qualtrics. They kind of vary in terms of what's automated versus what's not. So if you're downloading the data and kind of doing your analyses manually, obviously that's going to be a lot more time and resource intensive, but it will give you a deeper understanding of the methodologies um, and the and interpretation of the findings. Um, if you're using these platforms, automated analysis, uh, analysis products, then you're going to be saving yourself a lot of time. Um, the interpretations are going to be clear and laid out there for you, but you won't necessarily get that hands-on experience of, of doing it yourself. Yeah, I like what you were saying about a lot of the tools that exist already, like SurveyMonkey, for example, or even like Excel. Um, you can you don't have to be a quant person to use tools like that to analyze data, quantitative data, right? It's always good to have people who actually really understand the stuff and can explain it in like a simple way. So let's say now, when you share your findings from a quant research project, how do you present it in a way that's accessible to people like myself who are not numbers people? I think that's a great question. So in terms of thinking about how to best communicate findings from quant research, one thing that I, that I really value is being able to take information that might be quite complex, uh, statistical analyses, for example, and distilling that down to insights that are understandable and digestible to a much larger audience who might not have the same who probably don't have the same level of statistical or technical um, ability as yourself. So I think that the research is only as good as you can communicate it. I might do 
the most complex research design and really fancy analyses on the data. But ultimately, if I'm not able to communicate those in a way that's understandable in a simple, uh, in a simple and informative way to stakeholders who don't know uh, about the complexity of the design or, or those fancy analyses, that research is going to fall on deaf ears because it won't be impactful um, because it won't be understandable. So I think that a huge part of our job as, as researchers in general um, and as a quantitative researcher in which we are working typically with um, you know, analyses that might not be as well known to other non-technical folks, being able to kind of distill the important outcomes from those data and present them in a way that is um, accessible to people is a, is a really important skill to have. So what I like to try and do is take my findings from each statistical test or analysis that I run. I will write out in plain English what that finding means um, so that I have a kind of layman's interpretation of the data. And I, I find that after I do that with all my different findings and group them together in terms of similarities or differences, um, and creating a story from those data, I find that that is the most impactful as opposed to just presenting a series of t-tests that uh, show where there's significance and where there's not. That's likely to be poorly received by stakeholders who don't know statistical analyses. So really kind of that translation process of taking the information from numbers and um, inferential stats into, you know, words and actionable insights is a, a really critical skill. I always say that researchers, especially UX researchers, we act as translators of sorts, right? Like we're so close to the data and the data collection that it makes sense to us. We have to translate it in a way that makes sense to stakeholders who are not there with us or who don't have the same degree of investment in the research itself because they didn't conduct it. Um, so I like what you said about being a translator and trying to make sense out of it. And let me know if you agree or disagree with this. I feel like with quant research, it's probably easier to glean insights because it's so scientific and it's so clear, right? Either the hypothesis was, I forgot the terminology, what confirmed or not supported. I forgot the terminology in statistics, but either it was it, thumbs up or thumbs down, right? <laughs> However, um, in qualitative research, because it's so subjective and it's at the, it's at the discretion of the interpretation of the researcher, right? There's a lot more gray area in how we think about what an insight is. Do you find that with um, quant research that it's easier to identify, okay, yes, this is an insight, or do you feel like it's hard to identify insights? I, I, think, it, I think both. I think, it's a, I think it's a mixed bag in terms of how quantitative research is received by stakeholders. I think it does have the, the reputation of being more quote unquote scientific, whatever that means, because it has this numerical aspect to it. But I do think that added complexity in terms of numerical data also allows it to be more confusable as opposed to like a verbatim from a participant that says, I like this because of this, or I don't like this because of this. So a number on a page, I think we have to do that extra step of translating um, as opposed to kind of presenting the verbatims from a structured interview, for example. So I think it's a trade-off between Yes, it's perceived perhaps as more scientific because of this, you know, you're doing rigorous analyses on it, for example. But I think there is the danger there of losing your audience if you're not able to translate effectively.
And that's definitely a skill that you develop over time. It's not something you learn in like a school program. Um, you just learn how to be a translator of sorts just by doing it. And it's not an easy thing to do. I know, especially um, I'm a contractor, so I do different contracts like every X number of months. So what works, the approach that works with sharing my insights at company X may not work with company A. <laughs> so it's like trying to learn something new at every company. So that's true too. Just on that note, in terms of learning how to best communicate, I think a lot of that for me was during my time at graduate school. So when I was there, um, there were a lot of opportunities for me to take my research as well as the research of others and present that to um, people who weren't familiar with it, people who didn't have the same kind of statistical framework to work with. So for example, I taught a variety of undergraduate courses, including intro to cognitive psychology and intro to research methods. And in those courses, um, in order to get our undergraduate students to really buy in and understand uh, the content that we were supposed to disseminate, um, it was really important to take what are, you know, at their foundation, quite complex uh, topics like what a p-value is, you know, what it stands for, um, what a type two error is, um, why a control group is necessary in experimental design, uh, and being able to kind of break those down to their most core and understandable concepts uh, was really a kind of exercise for me and definitely took practice to, to get better at. Um, similarly, you know, presenting at academic conferences. So I might've gone to a conference that was, you know, very kind of specific to my academic research um, and everybody there would be familiar with, I studied cognitive aging. They'd be familiar with certain theories of cognitive aging and why older adults, uh, for example, tend to be more emotionally invested as opposed to knowledge seeking in their older years. And you could, you could operate under those pretenses that because of the specificity of this, um, people would have this knowledge as a background. But when I would present at conferences where, uh, you know, were more broad in terms of perhaps it wasn't cognitive aging, it was generally cognitive psychology, or maybe it wasn't even cognitive psychology, it was just a general psychology conference. Being able to take those theories that motivated you and your research methodologies and your analyses that you used and explain those to an audience that might have, you know, an underlying knowledge of psychology in general, but not necessarily of your specific uh, niche area. Um, that was a very helpful and something that I definitely got better at as I kind of moved up through my graduate career. So I think those communication skills are extremely crucial. And I think they're like a muscle. I think the more you practice them and the, and the more you um, learn from trial and error, um, the better you get. Yeah, that sums up research in general. <laughs> definitely. It's, it's definitely the, it's like the perfect example of a job where you learn everything on the job, regardless of how much training or education you had beforehand, you truly just learn it when you're just doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. And can you give us an example of how quant UX research has impacted a product or service that you've worked on? With regards to driving impact, um, a lot of the research I do here at Lyft is in conjunction and collaboration with our data science team. So often they're running experiments to determine 
you know, are certain metrics being improved uh, in product A versus product B? And so what they're really looking at is behavioral data. You know, are people using the app more? Are they spending more time on it? Are they, on the driver's side, are they, you know, driving more, for example? But in addition to that behavioral data, they really want to understand, and our product managers want to understand, what is the attitudinal data? So how do drivers or users of the Lyft app feel about the product? Do they understand it? How does it compare to competitors' features, for example? You know, running these surveys alongside experiments allow you to get a more holistic view of both the behavioral and attitudinal aspects of your product. And those together really kind of form a holistic picture that other well, either side can't necessarily see fully on its own. And when you do quant research, just like any type of research, really, you're obviously not doing this in the vacuum, right? You're not doing this by yourself. Um, you mentioned earlier, you talked about stakeholders. Let's talk about who else you work with. What relationship do you have with data scientists? I know you had mentioned a few moments ago that you do work with them. How do you work with data scientists? We work quite often with data scientists. I would say alongside product managers and Product marketing managers, I work most closely and most frequently with our data scientists here at Lyft. They are uncovering metrics, typically behavioral metrics, that is behaviors that are captured automatically in the data that the app logs when users are interacting with it. But really, like I mentioned earlier, that's only one half of the story. Uh, the other half is the kind of perceptual and attitudinal, so opinions towards the product that are not captured via that behavior. And so typically, um, when a product manager is pushing for a new product or a new feature, they want to capture both, you know, those data science metrics that are super informative of how people are using the product, but also those attitudinal features that matter also. Do people like it? Because that also informs its adoption and, and usage amongst your amongst your user base. And you mentioned product managers. How do you work with product managers as a quant researcher? Working with product managers, I think, was one of the bigger challenges that I had to adjust to shifting over from academia, just because I had never worked with uh, product managers, you know, in my academic career, and I'm still getting to learn, you know all of their responsibilities and roles. As far as I know to this point, the way I see product managers really is like as a team captain for the product who coordinates that product from the beginning of its product development all the way through the end when it's rolled out to your entire user base. And it's their role to coordinate between the engineers who actually build that product, um, the designers who designed the front end of that product, the researchers like myself who answer the research questions and help iterate on the product design, uh, the data scientists who help measure the uh, behavioral impact of that product, um, and the product marketing folks who help to communicate the goal of that product and, and speak directly with that user base. Um, I'm sure there's more people they interact with. That's Kind of the main ones that I see here at Lyft as you know that fall under this role of coordination from the product manager, and so being able to 
levy them as a resource for, for example, if I'm brought in to do a survey on a product that has gone through a few iterations, the product manager is the best person to go to, to, to hear about and to learn about the context of the product. What was it in the past? What was changed? Why was it changed? What's behaving well with the product? What's behaving poorly with the product and so on. They have all this wealth of contextual information because they've seen the product from its nascent stages to where it is now. And it's really their goal to, you know, get that product over the line in terms of being shipped um, to its fullest potential. So they're definitely in quite a, in a position where they're juggling quite a few different uh, responsibilities and making sure that, you know, everyone that's touching the product is working in harmony and towards the same goal. And lastly, in the group of people that quant researchers work with, um, the Avengers, right? One of the other people is the qualitative researcher, right? I know at Lyft, obviously, you work with qualitative researchers like myself. So um, Mm -hmm. how do you usually work with qualitative researchers? I know like when I started at Lyft, you were like my research counterpart and still are my counterpart. It's like the quant and qual come together. Um, But how do you usually work with qualitative researchers? I know you've only worked at Lyft so far. What has your experience been with that? So I work quite often with qualitative researchers. Um, at Lyft, our research team, I would say, trends more towards qualitative re- research than it does towards quantitative research. Qualitative research and quantitative research are two tools in your tool belt that are effective under some circumstances and not effective or less effective under other circumstances. And it's a matter of addressing the problem, well, defining the problem first and then setting out a plan to address the problem that is the most effective. And I think that qualitative methods are really good at uncovering, like I mentioned earlier, those motivational factors. Why is something occurring? Um, Surfacing issues in usability, for example, surfacing pains with a product that your users are experiencing. Quantitative data is really good at adding context to that in terms of how many people what percentage of your population is experiencing this pain? How frequently are these pains occurring? So really kind of quantifying that behavior within a larger group. And I'm always working alongside qualitative researchers. So sometimes it's after qualitative work has been done. Sometimes it's to feed into qualitative work beforehand in order to help shape you know, the way interviews are going to be conducted and what questions are going to be asked. But rarely am I ever doing quantitative research in a vacuum. It's usually, you know, one of three pieces of the puzzle, which are quantitative research, qualitative research, and, you know, those data science metrics that we've been talking about. And lastly, so I would imagine that quite a few people listening to this podcast are most likely qualitative researchers or even people who may not have a title of researcher but are doing research. So for those people, how can we, I'll include myself in that as a qual researcher, how can we incorporate quant UX research into our roles? To incorporate quantitative research more into your roles as a mixed methods researcher, or if you're more of a qualitative leaning researcher, I would really brush up on two areas. So one, as I mentioned you know, many times in this podcast, surveys are the main kind of bread and butter of the methodology that I use. Um, And there's a lot that goes into designing, planning, uh, programming, running, and analyzing data from a survey, as well as sharing those data out. There's lots of resources online 
as well as paid resources in terms of books that you can get that are really helpful in terms of giving you an overview of what the survey research process is. The second portion, so the first portion is kind of survey design and, and kind of planning around survey implementation. The second portion is the data analysis side. So like I mentioned, with quantitative research, we're producing this numerical data. And one of the main strengths is that we're able to make these conclusions about statistical significance or a lack of statistical significance. And so getting a really solid understanding of basic descriptive statistics, that's things like, what's the mean of our sample? What's the uh, standard deviation and the variance? Um, as well as basic inferential statistics, things like uh, t-tests, uh, chi-squared tests, ANOVAs, even things like regressions. So getting a really solid understanding of what those meth methods are and in what context those methods are used um, is really going to be valuable for you to kind of pitch yourself as a quantitative researcher or a mixed methods researcher that has experience with quantitative uh, research methods. Getting some additional quant knowledge can be as easy as Googling some of the things Alex mentioned, like a sample size calculator. I think that's a realistic start for people like me who want to do more quant, but don't necessarily want a master's or a PhD in stats. Ultimately, as always, research is about making the best with what you have. Thanks for listening to the Yeezy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. I'm Imani, the host and creator. Visit yizzyresearch.com for podcast show notes and information about my UX research coaching program. Again, that's yizzyresearch.com, Y-Z-Z-I research.com. This podcast was produced by Whisper and Mutter.